0: While the kids are going out, you can turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, and we'll just begin by reading the first 12 verses. Matthew 5, beginning in verse 1. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, He went up on the mountain, and after He sat down, His disciples came to Him. Our Father, thank you for this opportunity to read and consider these words of our Lord, how glorious they are, how wondrous it is to see the beginning of the preaching ministry of Christ on this earth. And I pray, Lord, that our attentive minds and hearts this morning would be pleasing to you. I pray that you would change us, that you would make us more and more like Christ. I pray, Lord, that the word this morning would be transformative And that all that know Christ would be enamored with the desire to follow after him in obedience. And that all who do not know Christ would see him for the loving, gracious Savior that he is. And come falling to their knees at the foot of the cross to receive Christ as Savior and Lord. We pray you would do wondrous things in our minds, in our hearts, in our lives this morning through your word. In Christ's name, amen. Today, I'd like to begin talking to you about the concept of joy, particularly today, the rightful possession of joy, which is yours as a Christian. It'll take us a little while to get there, but I do want to just begin with some thoughts on joy because it's something that's important to all of us. I I don't think there's any one of us woke up this morning and said, I've determined to feel no joy whatsoever today. That's, That's never our goal. It's important to every Christian, and yet it's something that can be elusive as well. It's something that seems to evade us at times. But even just a brief survey of the New Testament would show that joy and rejoicing are, are woven into the fabric of what it means to be in Christ. It's woven into the fabric of our faith. The concept of, of rejoicing and being in joy is spoken of 140 times in the New Testament. It's everywhere. It's, it's literally on every page. Now, right up front, I think it's useful to make this distinction the distinction between Christian joy and sentiment or emotion. Sentiment attempts to generate emotions, and that's not joy. What is joy? Well, joy is something that's based in your theology, it's based in that which is true. It's a solid foundation, it's it's concrete, it's bedrock, and upon that joy, on that theological foundation, you build the rest of your faith. And in fact, for the Christian, joy is often paradoxical. That's why it's it's not comprehensible by the unbeliever. Even as we just read, blessed are the, the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who have these and that, this and that difficult circumstances so it's a paradox in many ways but it's truth and it is solid and it grows throughout your christian life on the other hand sentiment which is the 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 primary goal it seems of much of american evangelicalism sentiment is never permanent you can't build anything on it it doesn't advance the overall maturity of your faith and it's always needing to be refilled over and over and over again you could, for example, come to a worship service with, with super loud music and, and elevated ecstatic sensory input like lights and smoke and, and repeating the same five words 78 times until you, that's all you can think about. But it never lasts. It never lasts. That's why it has to be repeated over and over and over again. You can read all the sappy, make-you-feel-good books that bring a tear to your eye, but it never lasts. You always have to have more. But true joy is lasting and it's a foundation and it grows and you build upon it throughout the course of your lifetime. Right up front, let me give you a, a brief definition of joy. This will be our foundation for the next number of weeks. Very simple definition and I'll give it to you a couple of times here. Christian joy is a settled confidence. That's the first part. Christian joy is a settled confidence In the sovereignty of God, Christian joy is a settled confidence in the sovereignty of God. And I'm going to add one more little phrase to that. Christian joy is a settled confidence in the sovereignty of God, which transcends situational happiness, which transcends situational happiness. In other words, your joy as a Christian has nothing to do with what's actually happening in your life because it's not built on that. Now you know this, Christian joy is a settled confidence in the sovereignty of God which transcends situational happiness. I called it Christian joy because true joy is only available to those who are right with God through Christ. There is no other joy available to the unbeliever. And they might pursue things that feel joyful, that feel happy. They'll spend a lifetime pursuing things to give themselves good feelings. But that's not joy. And we'll spend a number of weeks looking into this Now today, it's going to take a bit of time to work into this because we have a double whammy. Not only are we starting the next mini-series in Matthew, but we're also beginning the Sermon on the Mount. And in my Bible, about the next five pages are all in red, right? So this is significant. So how do we work into this? How are we going to do this? When I was a kid, I got to fly on airplanes a lot. And it was for bad reasons. My parents were no longer together and I had to fly back and forth between them. But I loved the flying. And of course, as a kid, what seat do you always ask for? The window seat. There's nothing like the thrill of watching takeoffs and landings. And then later on in life, I knew the physics of airplanes and I wasn't as thrilled about the takeoffs and landings anymore. But as a kid, I loved the window seat. Now, at this stage in life, I prefer the aisle seat because I can stretch my legs and I enjoy having my elbow broken off by the the cart coming up and ambushing me. But for our purposes this morning, we're all going to be in the window seat. We're we're up, flying high, and we're approaching our destination for landing. The, The destination we're ultimately going for is a city called Joy in the Lord. That's our destination. But to better understand that destination... While we're still at high altitude, we need to get a bigger picture, a bigger view of the surrounding countryside. And all of that countryside is what is commonly called the Sermon on the Mount. The first recorded sermon of Jesus Christ found in Matthew 5 through 7. There are numerous cities, so to speak, on this countryside known as the Sermon on the Mount. And over the coming months, we're going to visit each of these cities, four of them, in the form of very specific miniseries, Beginning in chapter 5, verse 13, we'll do a series called Authentic Christianity. Beginning in chapter 6, verse 5, we'll do a series called How to Pray in Power. And beginning in chapter 7, verse 1, we'll do a series called Warning Signs on Hell's Highway. because It's very, very evangelistic. But our destination city for today and for the next couple of months is the city of Joy in the Lord. Now, we'll make our landing preparation very slowly. We're going to begin at a high altitude and work our way toward landing the plane at the highest altitude with the biggest view of the countryside. We'll ask the question, what is the significance of the Sermon on the Mount? And I'll repeat these, still at a high altitude, but descending a little bit more. We'll ask the question, how do you approach the Sermon on the Mount? As we descend, we'll ask the question, why is the audience important, the original hearers, As we prepare for landing with your tray tables locked into place and your seats in the most uncomfortable upright position, we'll ask the question, what are the Beatitudes? And we're getting specific now. And in our landing, we'll introduce just very briefly the city of joy in the Lord. So this will help us understand the whole sermon. And that way, for the coming months, you can plug in that understanding as we go through it. So now first, at the very highest altitude, what is the significance of the Sermon on the Mount? What's the significance? The ministry of Christ had grown exponentially. We've seen this at the end of chapter 4, verses 23 through 25. People are coming from all over the region surrounding Galilee to see him, to hear his preaching, to be healed of various physical maladies, all kinds of illnesses and diseases. We saw that last time. Now he's ascended a mountain in verse 1 of chapter 5, and he's begun to teach. The traditional site of this epic sermon is now called the Mount of Beatitudes. It's just behind the city of Capernaum on the northern end of the Sea of Galilee. It isn't really that high of a mountain. It's just a big hill. I've been on it. And it it has, however, a spectacular view of the entire valley and all of the Sea of Galilee. But more important than the actual location is the scene itself, because this is strikingly similar to another scene you're familiar with. The scene of Jesus, here on the mount, beginning to teach, is very similar to what we might call a scene with the first Savior of Israel. The first Savior of Israel to lead them out of bondage was, of course, Moses. All throughout Matthew so far, we've seen the parallels between the life of Moses and the life of Jesus. At the time of Moses birth an evil pagan king killed all the infant boys because he believed there was a threat to his rule same thing that happened at the birth of Christ Matthew 2:20 gives another parallel when an angel tells Joseph to come back to Israel quote for those who sought the child's life are dead this is basically a verbatim quote from the Greek translation of the Old Testament, from Exodus 4.19, a couple of changes due to the situation. But when God told Moses, return for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. It's the same thing. Now, Matthew 5, one says he went up on the great mountain. Jesus is ascending this mountain to give, authori- to give authoritative instruction in God's law exactly the same as the ascent of Moses onto the great mountain of Sinai to receive the law of God for God's people. Both are acting as lawgivers. And the very same phrase, he went up on the mountain, is used again in Matthew 14, 23, right before the miracle of Jesus walking on the water, which is very reminiscent of Moses leading Israel through the Red Sea. It's used a third time in Matthew 15, 29, just before the miraculous feeding of the 4,000, which of course is reminiscent of God feeding Israel in the time of Moses with manna falling from the sky, from the heavens. There are many other parallels. I don't have time to go into them. If you're interested in these parallels though, the very last message I preached in our lengthy Pentateuch series, the last message I preached on Deuteronomy 34 is called the author of covenant salvation and we show 12 parallels between Moses and Jesus. So they're very, very clear. That's significant for the Sermon on the Mount and The major significance of this sermon is that Jesus is acting as and is the fulfillment of a prophecy that Moses himself gave. Deuteronomy 18.15, Yahweh your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. You shall listen to him. That's from Moses. Moses is remembered by the Jews as a redeemer, as a deliverer, as a savior. And now Jesus is is mirroring this, not to deliver Israel from the bondage of slavery, or from Egypt, or in this case, from Rome, but to deliver Israel from the bondage of sin and death, the Deliverer, the Redeemer, the Savior. And in fact, we could make the case that the major theme of this sermon is true righteousness. Righteousness that the genuine follower of God will be enabled to demonstrate true righteousness as outlined in this this whole sermon, which is basically an epic opening salvo of all the teaching of Jesus. This is his, His glorious opening message. Matthew 5, verse 20, He says, "...for I say to you that unless your righteousness..." There's the theme. "...surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven." Matthew 7, verse 12, "...therefore in all things, whatever you want people to do for you, so do for them." For this is the law and the prophets. He's telling you how to act in righteousness. And of course, neither of those verses that I read seem possible, but they are possible under the coming, coming new covenant in which the indwelling Holy Spirit will make those things possible, not through human effort, but through divine power. And so the significance of the Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus is taking his rightful place as the new Moses as the moses the the prophet predicted by moses himself now i want you to keep that in your mind because we're going to come back to that fact it's going to become extremely important in our next section and speaking of which let's have our airplane begin to slowly descend a little bit more toward the city of joy in the lord and come to our second vantage point of the bigger picture from a slightly lower altitude how do you approach the sermon on the mount how do you approach this text And we're going to fly at this altitude for a little while because this is when the controversy starts. And I want you to have an accurate grasp of this all-important sermon from Christ. Many church historians feel that Matthew has been the most influential of all the New Testament books. And I would agree with that. If given the opportunity, Protestants tend to view Romans as the most important of all the New Testament books because of its clear teaching on salvation, on soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. But Matthew, as the first gospel ever written, has made a mark on the church that's indelible, and it continues on to this day. And, and a big reason for this huge impact is the Sermon on the Mount, which, not coincidentally, is also the single most debated passage in all of the New Testament. Welcome to Grace Bible Church. We've got to walk through this. Because in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is, is teaching with great similarity to parts of the Old Testament. It makes it seem very applicable to the law-keeping Old Testament saint, those who were righteous by faith before God. But there's also a newness. There's a freshness to it. There's, there's overlaps that can be very confusing. And because this is such a unique time in all of redemptive history, a time when the old covenant is winding down. It's still in effect, but it's winding down. But the new covenant in Christ is now transitioning in, and we're right in that moment. The debates about how to interpret the the Sermon on the Mount have been going on for hundreds and hundreds of years. One scholar in the 1980s wrote a literature review just to outline all the major approaches, not just the minor ones, but, just, but the major ones, to the Sermon on the Mount, and he found major interpretations were 36 different applications or, or ways to approach this. So, number one, I won't do all 36, though. <laughs> but I want you to be aware of these because you need to understand how to read this text. As you go through it, it's the most important sermon, uh, many would say, in the New Testament. And so I want to give you some of the major ones. So I'm going to, and I'll do this quickly, but I believe it's necessary. I want to give you eight major approaches with a bonus ninth one, which is an expansion of the eighth. Don't worry about it. I'll explain it when we arrive. There are many more than this, but these are the most popular, the most common. The names of some of these approaches are a little bit cumbersome. They're a little long but I want to accurately represent the literature on this topic. There is some overlap between them, so I'll try to be as succinct as I can. The first one, the predominant position in evangelicalism today is called the soteriological approach. The soteriological approach. If you don't want to spell soteriological, the study of salvation approach. What does this view say? This view says, and it is predominant in evangelicalism, at least from the reading that I've done, also meaning that's the predominant view of the average church member. By the way, it's the predominant view of those outside the church who read the Sermon on the Mount because this is the most popular text in the Bible to non-Christians. The soteriological approach basically says, if you do these things, you will enter the kingdom of God. Be meek, be humble, be gentle, be willing to be persecuted for, for Christ's sake. But you know your theology and you're already recognizing this as proclaiming a works-based salvation, an ethical Christianity that encourages people to act like Christians in order to become Christians. And we can't hold to that. But it's a very popular view today. The second approach that's popular, the sociological approach. The sociological approach, sociology, the study of society and human interactions, The sociological approach says that the Sermon on the Mount gives the ethics necessary to make all of society better, that that's what it's for, that the teaching of Jesus is meant to be dispersed to the world until the world conforms to these standards. There's another word for that uh, that was used in the early 20th century, and that was fundamentalism. Fundamentalism says that if you force unbelievers to act like Christians, then you'll Christianize society. It's essentially a post-millennial approach which says that the church will prepare the world, that we will Christianize the world in readiness for the return of Christ and that the Sermon on the Mount is the key to doing that. If we'll teach everyone to be poor in spirit, to mourn, to be lowly, to hunger and thirst for righteousness and so forth. The problem with that is that the sociological approach is also believed by men such as Gandhi and Karl Marx. Unbelievers who saw the Sermon on the Mount as the means to a perfect Marxist-like society where everybody is under one ethic and, of course, with evil men in charge. That's how it works. Big-time problem with that because they separated the content from the, of the Sermon on the Mount from the author of the Sermon on the Mount, from loyalty to Christ, to God the Son. Now... If everyone in society was trying to obey the Sermon on the Mount, would society be improved? Absolutely. But it wouldn't be saved or cured. The same sin problems would still exist. The only salvation from sin is by the propitiation, the satisfaction of the wrath of God given by Christ at the cross, resulting in making his followers new creations in Christ who are capable of obeying his commands. Here's a third approach, and again, big words that I didn't make up, but these are what they're commonly called. The penitential approach. The penitential approach. This was Martin Luther's approach. Very popular early in the Reformation. The view says that the main purpose of the Sermon on the Mount is the same as what the law of Moses does in pointing out sin. It it drives the loss toward the need for a savior. To show the hopelessness of keeping the standard and thereby it is, is primarily evangelistic where it pushes you toward understanding that you can't possibly keep these standards. Now, that being said, I think it's fair to say that the entire Bible has that effect. Not just the Sermon on the, on the Mount. Countless people have been saved through the centuries just reading the Bible at any junction finding that they all fall short of the glory of God, and certainly many countless people have been saved reading the Sermon on the Mount. But, as an example, the eminent theologian, Dr. R.C. Sproul, he says he's probably the only person in church history saved reading Ecclesiastes 11.3, That if the clouds are full, they empty the rain upon the earth. And whether a tree falls toward the south or toward the north, wherever the tree falls, there it lies. That's what God used to save him. He claims to be the only one ever. (laughs) But we wouldn't say that the primary purpose of Ecclesiastes 11.3 is to drive the lost to salvation. And a major problem with the view that this is all about driving the lost to salvation, there were people listening in the audience who had already embraced Christ as Savior already embraced him as the son of God and Messiah. There's a fourth approach. Another big word, the ecclesiastical approach. The ecclesiastical approach. If you don't want to try to spell ecclesiastical and I can't do it without spell check, the church approach. That's easier. The church approach or the ecclesiastical approach says that Jesus was teaching something that was not meant for the original hearers. It was meant later for the church age. Fundamentally, it was a futuristic teaching that would be relatable only to the coming church beginning about three and a half years after he preached it. We would say, though, historically, the very first mention of a coming church body as we know it is in Matthew 16 with a very clear future emphasis. I will, future, build my church, Jesus said. But in the Sermon on the Mount, the church is never mentioned. The blessings given to those who abide by the Sermon on the Mount are immediate. Verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit. That's immediate. Verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. Verse 14, you are the light of the world. It's immediate. It's right then. Here's a fifth approach we would call the interim approach. The interim approach. And that is that the Sermon on the Mount was specifically spiritual and moral guidance only for the time of the Apostles, for as long as they mistakenly believed that Christ was going to return in their lifetime, and that at the moment of the death of the last apostle, the Sermon on the Mount no longer applied. It was an interim approach. It it was temporary. Well, the major problem with that is it's, it's pure conjecture. There's no basis for that in the text whatsoever. And that would mean it has no bearing on us in the New Testament church. There's a sixth approach that some call the kingdom ethic approach. And we're getting closer now. The kingdom ethic approach says that the Sermon on the Mount represents the ideal goal for believers of every age. This is the ideal, but it really won't be fully realized until the kingdom of Christ on earth comes. That this is something that we ought to shoot for, but we're not even going to come close in this life. We would agree that obedience to any part of scripture won't be fully realized until the kingdom. We're flawed sinners. We're still in sinful flesh. We are not in our resurrected bodies yet. But the Sermon on the Mount must also be a prior to the kingdom, a pre-kingdom reality. It's taught to those who are who are listening. And in the very next chapter, the Lord will teach them to pray, May your kingdom come. So this has to be a reality for those who were hearing at the time. Uh, the kingdom ethic approach, it has some merits, but it's not it's not a full orbed view that we can really go with. Similarly, and, and unfortunately. Uh, this view has been put forward most commonly by dispensationalists. The seventh view is called the futurist approach. The futurist approach is sort of like uh, the, the kingdom ethic approach, except much more black and white. That all the Sermon on the Mount is, it, it contains the law that will rule the millennial kingdom. It has nothing to do with us now. This is future law. This is, this is for the time of the future. Again, there's an element of truth to that, but to say that that's the primary approach really robs the Sermon on the Mount of its relevance. And and if that approach is true, then we ought to just skip it, right? And go straight on to chapter 8. And by the way, that view doesn't deal very well with the last part of the Beatitudes, which says believers are to endure persecution. That's one thing that will be ended in the millennial kingdom. So it can't be just millennial law. So now we get to something I think will make the most sense to you. The eighth view, the historical approach. The historical approach says that the Sermon on the Mount is directly related to the disciples, the true followers of Christ at the moment, that moment in history that they're hearing this and it moves forward from there. That this is an immediate description of kingdoms of the citizen. This is how righteousness is reflected in the lives of saved people that even the disciples are growing in their process of sanctification. They're not yet indwelt by the Holy Spirit, but what advantage do they have? They're right next to Jesus Christ all the time. So he, he does what the Spirit does by affecting much growth personally. Now, these disciples grew up in an era where they've been so mistaught and misapplied uh, with the Old Testament by the Pharisees and the Sadducees That they didn't know which way was up half the time with the law of God. And so Jesus is now having to give them a true understanding of the nature of righteousness. These men have been brought up to believe that righteousness means keeping all the rules that the Pharisees give. And Jesus says, no, that's not righteousness. This answers the question, what kind of righteousness now must be displayed to show that you are a saint? You are in Christ. You are one who will inherit the kingdom when it comes. What's expected of you? What good works will be shown to demonstrate that you are saved? Not to get you saved, but to demonstrate your salvation. Now, this view has a huge advantage because it's totally consistent with all the didactic teaching of the New Testament and the epistles concerning living a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. It fits perfectly. Now, I said earlier... That the very first approach, the soteriological approach, is the most common in evangelical circles, and it's the most commonly taught. But the believer who reads his Bible, one of my professors said that the Bible is always safest in the laps of the church member, not in, not in seminaries or with pastors, ironically. The average church member that reads his Bible, never once did it cross your mind that the Sermon on the Mount doesn't apply to me right now. It doesn't cross your mind. In fact, I'll bet a nickel it's a surprise to most of you that a lot of Christendom thinks it doesn't apply at this moment. So the historical approach is very useful. It's excellent. It has the most going for it. But it needs an added element to round it out. And so I'm going to give you a ninth kind of bonus view not in contradiction to the historical approach but added to it i'm going to give you a label it's my label i can't figure out how to make it shorter so i'm sorry in advance here's the label the historical new covenant law of christ approach the historical new covenant law of christ approach remember all the parallels to moses that we've already outlined moses the lawgiver of the old covenant Here, Jesus establishes in no uncertain terms that He is the lawgiver of the new covenant. He is the lawgiver. Overall, the the Sermon on the Mount represents a massive transition, a transition of, of epic proportions. Jesus is transitioning from the old law, from the Mosaic law, to the law of Christ. Listen to 1 Corinthians 9, beginning in verse 20. Paul says, To the Jews I became as a Jew so that I might win Jews. And to those who are under the law, as the law, though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. To those without the law, as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without the law. So, let me give you an overly simplistic explanation of what I just read. To Jews who still regarded the law of Moses as valid and authoritative, although for the Christian, the law has been fulfilled in Christ and it's obsolete, Paul argued the Christian faith from the Old Testament, from the law. He became as a Jew under the law. To Gentiles... Paul took the vantage point of not being under the law of Moses because the law of Moses has already been fulfilled, made obsolete with the inauguration of the new covenant at the cross. But you know this, Paul says he is under the law of Christ. He's under the law of Christ. And this is where I think the average evangelical in America says, but wait a minute, being a Christian means I'm under grace, not under law. We have to be more specific. We have to be more precise You are not under old covenant law, but you are under new covenant law, the law of Christ. And you might say, no, I'm not under any law. I'm free in Christ. Yes, you are absolutely free in Christ. You are free to obey the law of Christ. (laughs) Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my what? Commandments. He told his disciples in the Great Commission Matthew 28, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to keep all that I commanded you. Now let me be very clear on two important ideas. We've covered these before, but we have newer folks among us that maybe haven't heard this yet. Let's keep this very easy to grasp. Two important ideas. First of all, Old Testament saints were saved by faith. They're saved by faith. And they demonstrated their love for God by keeping God's law. Before Moses, it was whatever commands God gave directly. For example, to Abraham or to Isaac or to Jacob. After Moses, it was the law given at Mount Sinai as an Israelite. Genesis 15, 6 says that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Salvation by faith. The imputed or credited righteousness of God sounds almost like the book of Romans, doesn't it? Because salvation has always been by faith, always will be by faith. No one in the Old Testament was ever once saved by keeping the law. It wasn't designed for that. It's not able to do that. And in fact, the law has the effect of making sin all the more glaring because you're constantly comparing your disgusting life to God's perfect standard. And it drives you to a need for a Savior. So the first thing to understand old testament saints were saved by faith they demonstrated their love for god by obeying the law the law of moses but the second thing to understand new testament saints and we are those new testament saints are saved by faith and demonstrate their love for god by keeping the law of christ we're not antinomian we're not against the law of any kind James 2.14 says, What use is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but has no works? Can that faith save him? So what is Jesus doing on the Sermon on the Mount? What he's giving us is the opening salvo of the law of Christ. This is the opening, this is the, the introduction to the law of Christ, which will be continued in all of his teaching and continued in all the epistles throughout the New Testament, all the books of the New Testament. Jesus is the means for the fulfillment of all things in the Old Testament, that Christ in Christ, the Old Testament law has been fulfilled. He says that directly. Now he's proclaiming new covenant law for his people, and this supersedes the Mosaic law, which had been the rule of life for Israel before Messiah. Now, the obvious examples, the most obvious examples we see of major law sections happen beginning in chapter 5, verse 17. Chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus says, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Big question. What does Jesus mean when he says he came to fulfill the law and the prophets? You have to follow my logic here for a bit. Very often in the Gospel of Matthew, the Greek word for fulfill used here is used to speak of Jesus being the fulfillment of prophetic Uh, prophecies, predictions of Messiah from the Old Testament. Now, I'm going to spend a lot more time on this when we arrive officially at chapter 5, verse 17. But suffice to say that in verse 17, when Jesus says he came to fulfill the law and the prophets, he means that he came to be the one spoken of in the law, the Pentateuch, the Torah, and the rest of the Old Testament, the prophets. So then what does verse 18 mean? For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Well, if we stay true to the context of verse 17, that the accomplishment of the law means that, not the, that the, uh, all of the predictions of Jesus will come true, verse 18 means not one single prediction will go unfulfilled. He will fulfill every one of them. That if Jesus fulfills 99.99% of the predictions in the Old Testament of Messiah, but he misses that last little percentage point, then he's not Messiah. But he says, I will fulfill all of it. But now he shifts gears. In verses 17 and 18, he's asserting that he is the fulfillment of all prophecy about Messiah. And now he changes words From the Greek word translated law in both 17 and 18 to a different word translated commandments. In verse 19, whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. What's the big question in verse 19? What are these commandments? What are they? These commandments are the law of Christ as found in the Sermon on the Mount. And especially beginning in earnest in verse 21. You have heard that the ancients were told you shall not murder and whoever murders shall be guilty before the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court and whoever says to his brother Raka shall be guilty before the Sanhedrin and whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Jesus is not so much giving commentary on the Old Testament. He's not so much explaining the Old Testament law. He's correcting its misuses. He's correcting its misunderstandings of the law and he brings fresh new covenant stipulations which are binding on the new covenant believer in Christ. And all through this section, all the way through verse 48, the end of chapter 5, Jesus is correcting abuses and misunderstandings of the law of Moses and giving a fresh law. Now, all in all here, I'm going to take a lot more time to make this case when we arrive at verse 17 officially. But if in verses 17 and 18 you understand law and prophets and law to speak of the Old Testament, to speak of the law of Moses, then in verse 19 you have to be saying that, you, that Jesus is saying you must obey the law of Moses. That is contradictory to the New Covenant. Completely. It can't be. Instead, in verse 19, Jesus says you must obey these commands of mine. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives 46 explicit commands, 14 more implied commands, 14 times in the Sermon on the Mount, He says, I say to you, I say to you, I say to you, 14 times over, emphasizing His authority. Listen, if someone still thinks that Jesus is hearkening back to obeying the law of Moses, consider His conclusion to the Sermon. Matthew 7, 24, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. Verse 26, And everyone hearing these words of mine and not doing them may be compared to a foolish man who built his house on the sand. In other words, you must follow my words if you're going to be part of the new covenant. This is new covenant law. And what was the impact on his listeners? They were flabbergasted. They were stunned. They'd never heard anything like this. The very end of the Sermon on the Mount now it happened that when Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one having authority, not as their scribes. And when it says teaching as one having authority, it doesn't mean that he had a nice loud voice or he was really good at, or- at oratory speech or that he just seemed to really be able to hold a room. Speaking with authority means he made up these laws, they come from God because he is God. That's authority. Jesus didn't come to discard or throw away the Old Testament. He he says that clearly. He came to make certain that everything predicted in the Old Testament about himself would happen, and it did. Not one of his commandments in the Sermon on the Mount are contrary to the character of God in the Old Testament. Not one of them. They're contrary to all the misunderstandings. They're contrary to the misapplications of the Old Testament. But Jesus is the Messiah. He is the greater Moses. Moses gave the law from God. Jesus gave the law as God. And everything he said is in perfect harmony with the Old Testament because God's character never changes. But the law under which his people will thrive is now the law of Christ with his people empowered by the Holy Spirit to be able to to demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit. And so I believe that the historical New Covenant law of Christ approach best takes into consideration the relevance of the Sermon on the Mount to all of us, the interaction of the old and the new covenants now in transition, moving toward the cross, and the total authority with which Jesus teaches, not as a great Old Testament teacher, which he was, but with the authority of the lawgiver of God to give the law of Christ for the new covenant believer. So as our plane now descends lower, we stayed at that altitude for a while. We're going to go faster now. Third consideration, third question, why is the audience important? Why is the audience important? The audience, the original hearers of the Sermon on the Mountain, you always have to think about who who, who originally heard this, who originally read this as well. It's a key issue because it helps determine how you approach the sermon traditionally the sermon on the mount is approached as being primarily or even in some schools of thought purely evangelistic the soteriological approach that the beatitudes are the things you ought to do to please god and we already said that's a a works-based view of salvation anyway but if you say this is purely evangelistic then the audience is clearly unbeliever's If you say that this is purely and only detailed instructions for those who have already believed on Christ, then we would say that this sermon was directed only to disciples, to established followers of Christ. This is actually a fairly easy issue to remedy. Chapter 5, verse 1 again. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. You have crowds and you have disciples. And we should note, we've said before, that disciples may also include those who are simply following Jesus around out of curiosity. They're not true believers. But Matthew goes to the trouble here to distinguish between the crowds and the disciples. And the sermon itself bears this out. That Jesus is preaching to a mixed audience of the saved and the unsaved. Consider his teaching clearly to the saved. Verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit. This is the quality of someone who is in Christ. This is the quality of someone who has inherited the kingdom citizenship status by their faith in Christ. Chapter 5, verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. That's an admonition to disciples, to his followers. Verse 14. You are the light of the world. That's to the saved. On the other hand, consider his warnings to the unsaved, to those yet to place their faith in Christ. Chapter 5, verse 20. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Chapter 7, verse 13. Another warning. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. Chapter 7, verse 19. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Chapter 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. So Jesus is preaching to a mixed audience of saved and unsaved. And can I put it this way? I believe that nearly every sermon for the past 2,000 years has been preached to a mixed audience of the saved and the unsaved. Jesus models how to preach to both believers and unbelievers at the same time, teaching believers to obey his commands and warning the lost with the perilous consequences of ignoring the gospel. And he concludes his sermon with a very simple choice. That if you build your eternity on the truth of these words, the house of your eternal soul will never fall. But if you reject the law of Christ, you'll be judged and condemned for all time. What an ending to a sermon. The rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and it fell and great was its fall. The end. Almost every preacher I know just can't do it and I'm one of them. I always want God to come back to something positive. But Jesus just stops right there with a dreadful warning to the lost. Now why is the audience so important? The audience is important because understanding the mixed variety here, it makes the Sermon on the Mount supremely glorious for the believer as the law of Christ by which we live and supremely evangelistic for the lost. You can live your entire Christian life by the ethics found in the Sermon on the Mount and you can share the gospel with the lost warning them to come to faith in Christ based on these blunt and terrifying warnings found in the sermon as well. So let's get more specific now as we prepare for landing. Fourth question, what are the Beatitudes? What are the Beatitudes? Now we consider specifically the text we'll be examining over this next mini-series. Our first series we did in four chapters. This one we're going to do in 12 verses. More commonly known as the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes is a technical term given to the group of blessed are statements. These are the statements that Jesus makes here in verses 3 through 12. It's also used of the four blessed are statements in uh, which open Jesus' sermon in Luke 6 beginning in verse 20. The word beatitude actually comes from the Bible text itself. It comes from the Latin word Beatitudo, which mean which is what was in the Latin translation of the New Testament in the fifth century, and moving forward for many centuries after that. So if you read the Latin Bible, you would have seen the word beatitude, so to speak. But it was also a literary genre, it, it was a it was a form of, of literature that was very familiar To Jesus' listeners, it was a format used in ancient Egyptian literature, it was used in Greek literature, it was a format used by rabbis to teach truths, it was also used in the Old Testament. The entire book of Psalms opens with a beatitude Psalm 1, verse 1 How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked! Now, in our text here, the first eight of the nine beatitudes have a specific structure. You have the statement, blessed are. You have the description of those who are called the blessed. And you have an adverbial causal conjunction, for or because, which then describes the reason or the basis for that blessing. And So you have that same format eight times. The ninth one is an exception. There are lots of opinions about how to group these Beatitudes, whether they're pairs or in thematic groups. I'm not going to speculate on that because in the genius of Jesus Christ, All of the structural organizations that are put forward actually all fit. All of them. So he's a genius. He is the teacher of all the teachers. So what do you do with the Beatitudes? What do you do with these? We've already established that these can't be good works that you do in order to be made right with God. The only other option then is that these are accurate descriptions of the redeemed. And this seems to be quite clear. This is speaking of the redeemed. Verse 3, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 8, they shall see God. Verse 9, they shall be called sons of God. Verse 10, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 12, your reward in heaven is great. And so this is very apropos for us as believers in Christ to consider these. Because not only are they tests of genuine salvation, but they're promises that the redeemed have and may have these promises with great joy. Because that's the basic point of the Beatitudes that you're blessed nine times over as a follower of Christ. And even in the midst of seemingly paradoxical uh, situations, you're poor in spirit, you're mourning, you're lowly, you're hungry and thirsting for righteousness. That's the point of the Beatitudes. and So let's land the plane now in the city of the joy of the Lord. Nine times over, you are blessed. And I suppose... I don't really want to do this, but I suppose I should answer the English pronunciation question. Is it blessed or blessed? The answer is yes. (laughs) When it's a verb, it's blessed. He blessed the meal. When it's an adjective to describe a noun, it's blessed if it comes before the noun and it's blessed if it comes after the noun. Meaning it was a blessed moment or or blessed are the poor in spirit, because it comes before, but if it comes after the noun that's describing, then it's blessed. He was blessed. The meal was blessed. And it's correct to say then, blessed are the poor in spirit, and the poor in spirit are blessed. Welcome to the English language. I'm sorry about that, but that's just the craziness of our language. More importantly though, what does it mean to be blessed? It means to be happy, It means to be fortunate. It means to be well off. It means to be privileged. It means that you're favored. But let's put it in a theological context. Let's put it more precisely in the context of Jesus' teaching. In the New Testament in particular, to be blessed means to be the privileged recipient of the favor of God himself. To be the privileged recipient of the favor of God himself First Peter 4.14 If you were insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. That's the favor of God. Luke 14.15 Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. That's the favor of God. Romans 4.7 Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. That's the favor, the grace of God. James 1.12 Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial for once he has been approved he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love Him. That's the favor of God. 1 Peter three fourteen. But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. That's the favor of God. Now, I've been talking about joy. What does being blessed have to do with joy? In each case, in every beatitude given in Matthew 5, 3-12, it's associated with joy or rejoicing in those things and in fact i can prove that because there are examples in the new testament of every beatitude being lived out and causing joy i'm not going to take a long time to do this just listen so i can prove this point to you blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 6.10 says that he is sorrowful but always rejoicing as poor but making many rich as having nothing and yet possessing all things proving that blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. The Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter 1.6 in this you greatly rejoice even though now for a little while if necessary you have been grieved you are mourning by various trials. Blessed are the lowly, for they shall inherit the earth. Acts 13, 48, when the Gentiles, the lowliest of the low, according to the Jews, when the Gentiles heard this, the gospel, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed, blessed are the lowly, they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied 1 Corinthians 13, 6, the Apostle Paul says famously that love does not rejoice in unrighteousness but rejoices with the truth or with righteousness. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Hebrews 10, 34, the author says, for you also showed sympathy or mercy to the prisoners and accepted with joy the seizure of your possessions knowing that you have for yourselves a better and lasting possession. Blessed are the merciful, they receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Jude verse 24 says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless or pure, with what? Great joy. And blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Romans 15, 13, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace. Meaning you have peace with God. that your, your accounts with God have been settled. God is no longer at war with you. And you have joy and peace with God all at the same time. And the last, the, the big one altogether. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. What's the next word? Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. But this is proven also in the New Testament, Acts 5.41. So they went on their way from the presence of the Sanhedrin, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for the name, for the name of Christ. So the Beatitudes, every single one of them is associated with joy in the Lord, with rejoicing in the Lord, and only the Christian can say I am poor in spirit. I am nothing. I am low. God is everything. I am nothing. And yet I'm filled with such joy that it will last into eternity. And that's what we want to look into. And so over the coming weeks, we're going to examine joy in the Lord. We're going to do it one at a time. Joy for the helpless. Joy for the sorrowful. Joy for the humble. Joy for the hungry. Joy for the merciful. Joy for the purified. Joy for the reconciled. And joy for the oppressed. And and can I say this? I have the privilege of speaking to a lot of you throughout the week, either short texts or emails or sometimes even longer uh, conversations together. And what I hear all the time and all of us have this struggle is that I just feel like I don't have the joy of the Lord like I ought to have. And so I want to encourage you, you have a glorious opportunity over the coming eight, nine weeks to pursue joy. It's yours already. It already belongs to you. And so you pursue it as we go through each of these messages. You do it in prayer. You do it in obedience to the Lord. You do it with the rest of the body of Christ. Because of all people, we alone have the possession of joy. The fruit of the Spirit is love and what? Joy. It's right there near the top. And so if you're one of those that's struggling and you know it, and you know I've been saved by, by the atonement given by Christ at the cross, I've been made a new creation in Christ, and yes, I know that I have a heavenly future, and yet I wake up every morning just with an elephant on my chest, with, with gloom and darkness on me. What I hope to show you is that whatever circumstances you're in have nothing to do with your joy, and you can fly high above them. The airplane that we flew today descended to land in the city of joy. The airplane of joy need never land. And it flies above everything. And that's what I am praying to accomplish with all of us together in the coming weeks. I think that'll be good for our souls, good for mine, good for yours. Amen? Let's pray together. Our Father, thank you for this text. It is so encouraging and how exciting it is to read After he sat down, he opened his mouth and began to teach them and to think on what it must have been like to see the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the true King of all the kings, the teacher most recently come from heaven, hearing from the Father to open his mouth and to speak and to say these glorious words, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I pray, Lord, that in the coming weeks that these words are life-changing for us. I pray that these words would transform our hearts into those that are obedient to obey the command to be in joy. We're commanded to rejoice in the Lord always. And I pray, Lord, that you would teach us that joy. I know that many here are in the midst of circumstances that are dark and painful and difficult and hard. But I pray that those circumstances would pale in comparison with the joy of the Lord, the joy that our salvation brings, the joy of thinking about our future heavenly home, the joy of thinking about the future kingdom of Christ on earth, the future victory of Christ and the future kingdom of Christ on earth for all eternity with a new earth, new heavens, new Jerusalem. Let those truths permeate our hearts so that the the darknesses and the difficulties and the pains that we endure now just seem to fade as the apostle paul said that the little pains of today are nothing compared with the glories that are to come let us be a church characterized by christian joy spreading it through the gospel being those that are contagious with the joy of christ we pray these things for his sake for his glory and for our good amen